So, team dynamics this week? I'm sorry, is that our discussion, or is that what we yeah. decided to call ourselves? <laughs> it's our we discussion are topic team dynamics. Because if, if we're going with names, I'd like to submit the Wolverines. The Wolverines? I think it's taken yeah. by a university around here. Yeah, and my high school back in Virginia, and that dude from New Zealand who plays in X-Men. That dude? Yeah, that dude. Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hi there. Jameson Dance. Hello, my hey. mission is to bring calm to the boiling cauldron of hate that is the internet. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the pulling my hair out over OAuth. Merrick Christensen. What up? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Don't forget to use that code to get into FluentConf. It, it's a big conference. Uh, you can go to fluentconf.com for the schedule. Happens May 28th to the 30th. Uh, it's at the Hilton Union Square in San Francisco. And for our listeners, you can actually get 20% off on your ticket using J-A-V-A-J-A-B slash Java Jab. Uh, and that'll get you 20% off on the registration. This week, we're going to be talking about team dynamics and all the fun stuff that goes with it. So to start us off, I, I kind of want to ask, because I always get good stories from people when I ask questions like this. What is your worst team experience? Whoa, dude, that's... Yeah, that's, that's a, quite a way to start it off. <laughs> this sounds like a way to get me to burn some bridges. Wait, so, wait no, no, I know I this one. I played Little League, and I was scared of the ball, and I had to bat, and I was really short, and they wanted me to bat first because I would get walked all the time and get on base, but I just wanted to quit. I wanted to quit so bad because I didn't want to get hit by the ball. That was my worst team experience. <laughs> my parents wouldn't let me quit because they wanted me to develop stick with it to activism. My worst team experience was this podcast I did for quite a while. <laughs> Ouch. Where they asked me very, very tough questions, personal disturbing questions. Yeah. So I, I have to say that I've worked on a lot of teams. They all had their own dysfunctions. It seems like, though, the most, uh, the, the worst part of any of them was always dealing with people outside of the team. So... You know, you deal with the developers, and sometimes there's that guy you don't like. But most of the time, your issue is communicating with the outside groups. So your product owners, your product manager, your project manager, you know, depending on how good they are, you know, usually have a problem with at least one of them and the way that you can or can't communicate well with them. Is that something that you guys have seen? Uh -huh. Or have you, have you seen more problems within the team between, like, the developers? It's when you're in school. And the, the teacher is the team lead, and the team strategy is no teams. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is one of the biggest problems is conflicts externally. I think in development, it's really tough to manage expectations from people who aren't developers. Well, there's just the natural dynamic as well that you're always going to clash more with people that are not part of your team, mm -hmm. you know? 
whenever you're dealing with any, uh, you know, whatever group you're dealing with, if you're dealing with another group, then you always feel more loyalty towards your group than the other group. And so like, if it's development and project management, there's, you know, some disconnect. But then when you go to like, oh, it's my company versus your company, then there's disconnect. If it's, yeah, whatever. There's all, there's just a natural human dynamic to be more loyal to the place, the group that you're closest to. So that's just natural. But Mark's point is definitely true that there's so little recognition about what engineering, software engineering is like, even among engineers. So you take it outside of people that aren't engineers or who used to be engineers, and everybody else wants to control an uncontrollable process. Yeah. 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 We, um, in the project I'm working on right now, um, and I'll just be working with them for another week and a half, and then the contract ends. Incidentally, if you have uh, Ruby, JavaScript, or iOS work you need done, let me know. Um, anyway, um, it's it's been really interesting because we've been dealing with these product owners who started out basically uh, designing our software for us, and um, you know there there have been some conflicts over you know how how detailed or not detailed they should get and things like that as we figure out our process within our agile, if you want to call it that, process. And so we, we've been fighting, you know, this battle over, you know, understanding where, you know, how, how far they should go and how far we should, you know, how much we should be deciding. And it's it's been really, really interesting, um, some of the conclusions that we've come to and, you know, some of the things that we're still struggling with. But I, I'm, I'm a little curious to hear what you guys have to say about some of it. So I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there and then, and then we'll get your opinions on it. But basically the way that we broke it down was that... Uh, the product owner should be giving us what they care about. So, for example, um, the thing that I've been dealing with today with them is they want to add settings to the application and then they want to be able to have the users go in and basically override the defaults when they care about, you know, those those settings. And uh, so, you know, I, I've been pushing them toward what do you care about? You know, you care about that they can change it. You care about that it has the certain level of functionality but you don't care about things like the database design or you know how it's implemented on the back end as long as it does what you say it wants to what you want it to do is is that generally how you guys approach this kind of thing or is I think any product person that's not a technical person that's trying to design your database is woefully misguided yeah and and, and, and you have you have terrible terrible problems if that's happening so yeah. I I wouldn't say like that's how I try to approach it I'd say that's that's what happens, and if not, then then bad things are happening. Yeah, it's like saying I try to approach my day by by not dying, and if I do that, then then it's all good. Like, <laughs> yeah, hopefully the product the product person isn't telling me like what framework to use or something because it's no good. Yeah, I mean, I so we've talked about this a little bit because at. ITV, we're trying to move to more of a flat style, and we're trying to figure out what exactly that means for us. And it doesn't mean, well, it, it is a little bit chaotic because we're getting lots of input from everybody instead of things coming down from the top, you know? But there are still areas of expertise, and I think that's true for any team. There, there are designers who are very good at thinking up ways that people will like to use products and, and flows and things like that. And developers can have ideas about design, but the, the weight of the idea is proportional to the expertise of the person giving that idea in the subject. So I think that same thing should apply for product people, right? They, they can have ideas about technical things, but if they don't know anything about technical stuff, then their ideas aren't 
they shouldn't be given that much weight if they disagree with people that know a lot more about technical stuff. Right. It's it's tough though because they always do, and I and I found that nothing sucks the joy out of development than unrealistic expectations. <laughs> and and uh, it's just tough. It's tough to manage that. I don't. I honestly don't know how to. Yeah, I, I think it takes a lot of communication, and obviously we haven't completely figured this out. It's it's also interesting to me that. For example, um, when I worked for uh, Public Engines, CrimeReports.com, their their product manager or the project manager was excellent, and he was really good about managing all of these different groups of people. And so when we dealt with things over there, most of the time we were just dealing with him. And then, you know, with these these other companies, it's, it's different dynamics. And so I think it really depends on who you're dealing with as well. So when yeah. you talk about expectations, Eric, are you just talking about deadlines? So we think this stuff is going to be done super fast and the developers think so, it's going to take longer so what? Tell me, tell me if you guys experience this, because this is something I struggle with. Uh, you're in a meeting and you're sitting here talking about all the features and there's like multiple product people, one developer, maybe a designer, but really from a guy that's doing the work, you're outnumbered four to one. So you have a bunch of people throwing ideas out, and and uh, while you want to be able to get enthusiastic about these ideas, etc., they all come at a cost to you, right? They all come at more workload uh, without usually deadlines fluctuating. So you have to kind of put the put the devil's advocate and kind of ruin the party a little bit and keep things realistic. So really, not only is that, uh, expectations that I'm talking about like. Uh, Deadlines, sure, but also keeping feature scoped within deadlines, right? So, yeah. so you're talking about the problem where uh, it sounds a lot like scope creep. So, stuff has already it been is. assigned to you. You already have deadlines, and then people get great new ideas. Yeah, and don't, and don't then, realize and then that the, changing what you're doing will change how long it takes to do it. Exactly, and they'll use the whole agile argument to be like, well, throw out all that old stuff because. It's agile time easies, you know? <laughs> so, it, I don't know. I struggle with it, and it, and it really sucks the motivation out of me. Yeah, yeah. We, we we have something similar that we fought in the past where basically we'd get a story, and it was this wide-open story. And, you know, the expectation was, oh, you'll get it done product. this sprint. And so we're sitting there going, look, you just wrote a blank check, and you're asking us to cash it. And, you know, so you start doing the same thing. You start... Um, you know, defining what the requirements really are so that you can give them an accurate representation of how much work it's going to be and when it's going to be done, which they don't always like. This feels really antagonistic. It feels <laughs> like it feels like you guys are battling a lot, and like you're you're the enemy, or your or your product people are the enemy. And so, sometimes well, it feels that way, and sometimes it doesn't. It really just depends on who you're dealing with and how attached they are to whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. Also, I've noticed that, that these kinds of problems are almost directly proportionate to the size of the organization you're in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is true. It, it also has a lot to do with how much power any one person has. So if they feel powerless, they usually they feel like they don't have much choice, so they have to push, and, and, and that, that causes issues too. So somebody above them is saying, you have to have these features done this way by this time and so they're coming in and you're telling them no and so then they're stuck between what the person above them said and the person who can actually implement it said 
and and they're at odds and so then these poor folks are stuck in a situation that's you know, uncomfortable yeah actually that's a good point exactly. so if you if you have a lot of layers of hierarchy and you have like the ceo talking to the vp who's talking to the manager who's talking to the project manager and at each layer someone has to like come up with a totally pulled out of their butt estimate for how long something's going to take like that would suck to be that person, right? Like, they well, don't know how long it's going to take. They don't have any idea of what what it involves, even. So, how are they supposed to come up with a realistic estimate? Exactly. But but the real problem is is that people have different goals, right? Like the PM may be struggling to get one feature in, <coughs> while the CTO has promised some different features, and so and and there there may or may not be collaboration based on these things, and so everyone's trying to get in what makes them valuable down to the developer, right? Because if they can deliver X feature, then they kind of are able to justify their stay. Or deliver it in a certain way or under a certain deadline or a certain cost. They so, each have different goals. Yeah, so what all of them end up doing is compromising on quality, which is not a place you want to be, right? Maybe. There are places there are places where they're like their yeah. goal is quality. Yeah, there oftentimes there are yeah. goal is quality and they're pushing for quality. And I think that has to be like an organizational yeah. Uh, ideal. But sometimes there are people who their metric or their personal, what makes them valuable is to push the quality up, right? And so somebody else is pushing it down because their goal is cost. Somebody else is pushing in more features because their goal is getting a certain thing done. Somebody else is pushing that sort of stuff out because they want quality and developers are kind of caught in the yeah. middle. And I've seen different layers of, of or different levels of these different conflicts at different companies. I, I don't want to put this on any one company just because, you know, uh, some companies do real well at one area and, and struggle with another. So, so this, this again seems like an argument for a flatter structure, right? If you had the more layers of people that you have things filtering down through, the more opportunities there are for things to get messed up. And it's not just layers. It's just the quantity of people. And, but I, I actually tend to agree with the, with the flatter structure approach. However, it doesn't scale. Like, I don't know how to scale it, right? Like, the biggest company I know of that does it is Valve. And they do it to great success, right? But, but, but they're also they're, Valve. <laughs> yeah, and they're also a really small company compared to a lot of software development shops. Like, they're, they're big in their presence, but like employee count wise, they're like a I don't three think or four hundred or something. Many, but yeah, that's not like a giant company by any means. And they also have the luxury yeah. of hiring the smartest people that exist on the planet because of their yeah. reputation. Sure. Yeah, if you can sure. count on everybody to do the right thing, then a flat structure's fine. You know, and if you're willing to weed out the people who aren't gonna do the right thing, then you know, again, your your flat structure is probably okay. But the reality is is that the the world as a whole is becoming more dependent upon technology and that means we need more programmers and so you know uh, somebody's going to have to hire the folks that you have to babysit and, and i don't know yeah. that and, and the other thing is is that some people really do well under more of a hierarchical structure you know they're they're terrific yeah. programmers they do great work um, they don't necessarily need to be babysat but they thrive when they have a boss to report to as opposed to you know being in a flattened structure so i i like jameson's approach that that really, if it's like an open source project, right? If you can count on people to do the right thing and move the company forward because they share a common vision and they're smart people, great. But in the search for developers that I'm sure all you guys at your tech companies have gone through, and I'm sure you've interviewed people, those people are not as uh, common as you'd hope. 
I think is when business expectations come, you're not always awesome. I just don't think you're always allowed to pick the ideal, which is to get a bunch of uh, people who who want to do the right thing, uh, which those people can kind of be a, a pain sometimes, right? Because everyone has those, all those people have opinions. Um, oh yeah, that, it's chaos. That you have it's, to, it's right. It, it, it's chaos, total right? There's chaos. lots of arguments, lots of disagreement, and sometimes people get grumpy. What do you do though when, when business needs demand more people and those people take a lot of recruitment, right? And there's not as many of them as you need. You have to settle, right? If you have a whole bunch of A people, that may not still totally work, you know? Sure, we hear about the success stories of 37 signals, right? Eight, eight A players building something that changed the face of software development, right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of other examples out there of companies with eight A players that just crashed and burned horribly. But we just don't hear about it because they didn't have a great success story. I, I, you actually, can't base- I actually wanted to say something along the same lines. I mean... What makes an A player? You know, if if I get you know ten of the top developers in the world together and they can't communicate, then I'm not going to get my crap done. And it doesn't matter that they're the best programmers in the world. You know, so 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 there are other things, there are other intangible things than just somebody's uh, level of skill with a text editor or IDE that that means success for a software team. Really? So, yeah, it's sometimes being an A player is really just about where you're at at the moment. Yes. I got a friend who's a developer, and if you give him, you know, a, te- a skills assessment test, he would come out, you know, not very amazing, right? He'd be pretty average. But as far as working with him and getting stuff done, I prefer him to just about anybody else. He's just amazing at just getting things done, getting things done right and well, and taking care of all kinds of crap. But he doesn't remember every syntax off the top of his head. So here's my question, though. I Development is a really intellectual art, right? Like, for example, Jameson could probably do things in, in significantly less lines of code, significantly more elegant, more maintainable than, than I could with Node, nope. right? <laughs> well, <laughs> not, but, but we'll go for it for the sake of your example. Sure. My, my point is, though, is hiring a workhorse is they could cause a lot of damage if they don't have the same intellectual capability. Because just because it works doesn't mean it's going to work for a long period of time. And just because it works doesn't mean it's going to be sustainable for future development. So so that's what's really hard about this, is it's not like we're just hiring uh, people to lay bricks, right? They could potentially really hurt the, the future of the product. Yeah, it is. This whole problem is just, it really is all about size. I mean, if you think about the most effective experience you ever had developing a project, my guess is you always say it was the smallest, one of the smallest projects you've done. Is that, would that be true? No. I don't think I've ever worked on gigantic teams, so I actually can't really tell you. Well, for me, it was a, per, it was a team of two, me and one project manager. That was by far my most, effect, most <laughs> effective and best development experience. From, from my experience, the smaller the team, the more productive we were and the more maintainable the code base was. Right. But that doesn't scale, right? Because, because you're throttled. Like, like there comes a point where you have to trade technical debt, also bigger teams, which can create technical debt. Even if everyone's an A player, because ideas are different, they can do things different ways, and then you have technical debt because there's two different cognitive patterns for the for the application. So 
it just doesn't scale. So then you're forced to essentially accept some level of technical debt that you're fighting I, to I, get business needs up. And in this technical area, like in this technical space where people are shipping products like all these different times, it, what are you supposed to do? You can't compete, right? Unless you scale up this big old team. What about dividing into smaller teams though? Well, that... So you can work at a gigantic company, but but have small teams within that company. Yeah, you, yeah the thing is, is you have to define the barriers, or not the barriers, but the the boundaries between the two well enough so that the... the I like the way that you said the cognitive patterns that don't match up, Merrick. Um, so that so that um, they do match up. He's talking uh, about uh, semicolons versus no semicolons, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you so you have smaller teams. I'm sorry, Chuck. Go ahead. But but the the places where you stitch it together, the places where your APIs line up, you know, those you you have to be very very explicit about that, so that even though the code doesn't look the same on either side, where where they mesh. Um, goes together seamlessly so that it does feel uh, mostly like one fabric. But then you have problems uh, as an organization trying to move developers from team to team, right? So that's yeah. why you need some sort of standardization process uh, where things are the same relatively, right? You can't have one team building with Angular and another team building with Backbone and another team building with Ember because then your product is downloading three major libraries when it should only download one. So you're going to have performance problems. You're also going to have... Uh, Team problems because moving guys from teams suddenly makes you less flexible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you do have to settle on some standards. So the smaller, yeah, the smaller teams comes at a cost of fragmenting your code base into different schools of thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and the thing that I want to point out here is that um, they're they're trade offs, right? So you're not saying that it's not worth it to to fragment the code base to get more work done. You just have to decide if the trade off makes sense. So really, you have one standardization team per level of the stack, like a server standardization team and a client standardization team, and they essentially work with all the sub-feature teams. Yeah. So are they kind of the architects on each uh, Yeah, layer? you could consider them the architects for the stack, but... Do but they, do really they like decide architect. application architecture, or do they just decide technology stuff? So, like, we will use this framework stack and this... I would consider them... I think the team as a whole decides the technology stack, right? Everybody. Okay. Um, at first. Gee, that'd be nice. But it's their job to make sure that that the different teams are doing things consistent and not duplicating work. Yeah. And and enabling those teams, right? For example, in a services team, if everyone is doing X, then that team should be responsible for making sure X isn't distributed and that it's in one place. So you could call them a framework team, if you will. Okay. There's a lot of documentation and thought and blogs and even books about scaling Agile. And we're really just talking about software development, which in our day and age is Agile and scaling Agile. And there's a lot of people out there talking about it with their experiences in doing it. The sad truth is it's really hard. Agile doesn't scale well, but that's just because software engineering doesn't scale well. Yeah. And so combating that is very difficult. And by far the best thing we found so far is teams, teams of five to nine, and then how to get those teams to work well with the other teams is just really hard. So you got to have scrum of scrums and do all these other practices that allow architects that own pieces of application just to manage the communication so you're just not bogged down and trying to get people to come to consensus and spending all your time doing that no time building software. The more you can reduce the coupling and the dependencies, 
the more effective your teams can be. So whether that's you just build smaller applications, somehow divide up your application into smaller pieces and let teams, you know, most of the time when Agile says that it works, it's dividing up by uh, feature. So you have one team that builds these features and this, this piece of the application, another team that builds these features and this piece of the application, they go through the entire stack. That's, the, that's generally accepted the best way to scale Agile. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that up and, and you kind of alluded or talked directly about uh, some of those issues. But again, I think most of it boils down to communication again. So if you have a smaller team or a smaller subset of your team that's working on a single feature, then you can have high bandwidth conversations about that between three to four people and, you know, the rest of the team doesn't have to be involved. And so you're reducing the amount of overhead that you have uh, related to your uh, communication and then the rest of the team gets communicated. Here's the API that you're connected to. And so, you know, you're, you, you, you build that up or break it down the way that you need to. And then scrum and retrospectives and everything else are about communicating about the project or about the process or about some of these other things. And every time you add another person to the, to the team, you're increasing the, the amount of, or the complexity of the conversation, the complexity of the communication that you have to have. And that's why the smaller teams seem to work. One counterpoint I want to bring to that though is that, um, I worked for a company where, um, I was leading a team of four people. And, um, the, the problem was, was that on that team, two of the people were just there to collect a paycheck. They weren't engaged. They, they, you know, they weren't really involved. Um, it wasn't my decision to hire them, but anyway, they, so they, all they really cared about was, you know, being there, writing whatever code they had to write for the day and then going home. And the problem it was, was again, you know, it was more of a one way communication. There wasn't that feedback. It wasn't, it wasn't a terrific uh, situation to be in. And sometimes we'd wind, they or we would wind up building the wrong thing because again, we didn't have that level of engagement. So that's another thing that comes in with these things is that, you know, a smaller team, it has to be a smaller team with the right people. Right. So one thing we've touched on a little bit is, is like managing teams as they exist. And one thing I'm wondering about is the idea of creating a monoculture. Because if, if you're interested in creating a specific style of culture, if you want um, good developers that can also communicate well, like is there a certain kind of person that you're going to hire then that you'll miss out on other kinds of people? Right? We've talked about like the, the superstar developers that maybe just don't like to communicate or work with other people as much. They just kind of want to sit down and bang out amazing stuff. And if you value communication so highly, you're going to miss that kind of person. And is that useful? Is that important? Can you afford to just hire a certain kind of person? All right. So with my experience at Spotter RF, we had a very di diverse team. Um, like in terms of skill set and personality, we had some people that were really just workhorses and in the sense that you you gave them instruction and you said this is what i need done and if it involved learning then it would take them like four times longer than anyone else right but then once they got into the groove of it then they would get it done better than you know four times better than anyone else right so we we had that type of person we also had the more creative type people where like you give them a problem to solve and they'll solve it in seconds 
but then you want to want them to carry it through to like all the meticulous little details of it. And then that part's going to take them a long time because the, the creative problem solving really engages them and like, and, and they can just burn through it. But then when it becomes more meticulous, then they're just not, you know, as, as fast anymore. And then, uh, people that more are more into research, like Jameson, when he was with us, and when I was with us, <laughs> when, <laughs> but like, I loved having Jameson because he researches stuff. Like he's always got some blog article that he's ready. He always has a great idea about how something could be implemented because he's just so into research. And so if we were in a culture where we didn't allow all this diversity, where we said, you know, everybody needs to be the creative rock star or everybody needs to be the workhorse or everybody needs to be the researcher or that we didn't value a researcher or, you know, any of those things, then the work would not have gone as well. Like we needed that diverse team of people that had different strengths and weaknesses to pull it together. And, and I feel like it was, it was a really great um, experience with those people. Yeah, one thing that I want to jump in here with is that every team is different. So in in that situation, those folks fit in real well. Um, in in other situations, um, the people who take a long time to research something and then go implement it, you know, they they wouldn't fit on the team that that, that I was on. So I mean, it really really depends, um, and it's really hard to know whether or not somebody brings something to the table that you need without actually kind of trying them out. And so I see a lot of companies doing like contract to hire, or they'll bring somebody in and just pay them as a contractor for like a couple of days to come in and work with the team just to see where they fit. But um, most of the teams that I've worked on, um, the guy that would go off and work in isolation and not communicate well, even if he was like a rock star coder, wouldn't have fit well with the team just because we're bringing somebody like that in so that the team can benefit from the ex- their expertise and not just in, okay, go do the hard stuff for us. Right. Right. Absolutely. So with some of these problems um, or some of the dynamics with the team, have you had people on your team that uh, really helped the dynamic? And, and what were they like? Well, always yes. the less vocal personalities make a big difference. The less vocal personalities? What do you Volatile. Mean? Volatile. Meaning like if someone's not abrasive, they're better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like no one wants to work with a dick. Yeah. Is <laughs> the truth of it, right? Yeah. So where's the line then between somebody being a, a dick, so to speak, versus somebody who voices concerns and is willing to disagree with other people on the team in order to um, explore a problem. You know, much like pornography, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I think it's very, yeah, sorry for the vulgar language that was not intended, but I think it's a lot of just the approach, right? Like you can, you can attack somebody or you can focus on the problem, and there's a huge difference. Yeah. That, that's fair. Um, I think some of it has to do with the attitude of the rest of the team as well. Like if, if your team is getting along and is generally happy, then it's a lot easier to disagree productively um, without being perceived as, as being a jerk, you know? Uh-huh. But if, totally. if people are kind of grumpy at each other already, then innocent technical disagreement can be perceived as, as, oh, that guy's just a total jerk. Like, I don't know, they're just a contrarian. So I think a lot of it has to do with just the health of your team. And a sign of a healthy team is is being able to entertain spirited debate. Yeah. Right. 
I think so that's so true. I think it's hard though because for some reason in the technical world, or at least in the professional world, you forget that what composes a business is people and and people's emotions uh, have a really strong effect on their productivity. Oh yeah. So it's important to stay positive, right? Where it's really easy for nerds to get really like uh, negative and cynical. And, and also to just treat treat people like the best employee you could have is a robot. And I think that that's one of the most dangerous things an organization can do, but it's very much so the way that the corporate world works. Oh yeah. yeah there's this fantastic book called Different. Um, I'm totally going to put that in one of my picks. And it talks about the fact that we tend to homogenize ourselves when they, they are specifically talking about products, but they take kind of take it and apply it to people as well, that we have all these strengths as people and then we have these weaknesses. And when we go and we have, have our review with our manager, what are we, what's the only thing we hear him say? Well, you got to work on these things. You got to get better at this. He never says, you're amazing at this. We'd love you to get better at that. Right. And so we homogenize ourselves. And for me, I worked with this guy who was just by far the most amazing person technically that I've ever worked with outside of possibly Merrick. And, uh, but he was a little, uh, he was a little rough to work with sometimes. Me? No. Yeah, <laughs> no. I said, Good. besides Merrick. So he was a little rough to work with sometimes. Not like, there was a couple of times when he made me mad. And, uh, but the guy was amazing to work with. I loved working with him because he was really smart and he got things done really well. And most of the time, he was just really, really, really good to work with. So, but the bosses were always like, well, you're not working well with other people. And it's like, dude, this guy's value is in the fact that he is getting things, you know, doing some amazing technical stuff that everybody, that really benefits everybody. His value isn't that he's easy to work with. Yeah, it'd be nice if he's easier to work with, but his, if, if he works on that and forgets all about the stuff that he's really good at, then that's not going to be the kind of employee that you want. Yeah, You don't want robots. You want people that are, have strengths, which kind of constricts what I was saying. Nobody wants to work with a dick, right? So you still got to keep that in mind. But we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Some people are just good at staying focused and pounding stuff out. And some people are good at solving problems. And some people are good at designing solutions. And some people are good at communicating. And some people are good at managing the team and keeping the team even keeled and being positive. Yeah, and I like... Something that I, that I think is amazing for me, and, and granted, I'm a pretty sensitive guy. So, so when I've had a manager that, that pays attention to like something I'm struggling with, right? Like, like after a meeting where I feel the wrong decision was made, instead of wanting to talk more, more about that, they're more like, dude, how, how do you feel? How can I help you? Right? Like addressing the human side of me, so to speak, like the emotional side. Uh, or being just aware of people's lives, et cetera, has made all the difference in, in my attitude for where I work. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, really I think important. when a team member asks you, you know, what's wrong, if you, if you, if you look upset, I think it goes a long way for building the team. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about specialization and I've seen specialization both help and hurt teams. Um, you know, so you've got the guy and he has that skill that really pays off for the team one way or the other. You know, how, how do you disseminate that? Do you do pairing? Because um, I've seen that work before. Are there other ways of doing that? And then at the same time, how do you how do you avoid the problems with creating uh, silos, expertise silos within your team? I think there are two kinds of specialized skill that you're talking about. And one kind is the, the technical knowledge. Like someone is a, a wizard at, at Postgres or something like that, you know. 
There's also the application specific skill where this person built from scratch this one application or they've worked on it for forever. And those are very different because one is really good and one is really bad. And I think having specific expertise in technologies is amazing, but having all of your knowledge about one system in your app concentrated in one person is really bad. I think you can distribute the technical skill by, by pairing and stuff, but it's also just as important to distribute the knowledge about parts of your application. Probably more yeah, and I, anyways. I think it's a matter of attitude too, in terms of learning. Like I heard once that, that if you're too old to learn, then you're probably always too old to learn. And I've noticed as I get older and I'm still a pretty young guy, I get, I'm getting lazier in terms of like, <laughs> oh man, this, what is this, this newfangled piece, stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like this piece of the stack, I'm going to let this guy handle and I have to consciously, uh, you know, purposefully say, no, I'm going to do this piece as well. Or, uh, I'm going to build this feature from the start to the back because rather than continually pawning off to that guy that knows a lot about that area, uh, I think it's worth the company's time to pay me to maybe take 20% longer than him to have that knowledge, right? Because, because ha pairing with somebody and having them do it next to you or doing it with them, I don't, for me, it doesn't teach me, like it doesn't stay in my head the same way that, that grinding against it till I figure it out does. That's a really interesting attitude. I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think having an attitude of like, I need to figure this out before I go get help is exactly how people learn. I, I, I feel like anytime you're stressed or frustrated, it's usually a sign your brain is about to learn something. So just <laughs> out of curiosity, compare that to how you learned how to um, uh, test drive. I mean, relate that to how you No, I'm being totally honest here. So for you guys don't know, Joe, when Joe got hired, he sat down and he showed me test-driven development, and we paired. And uh, I've been doing test-driven development ever since. I really like it. And actually, that was that was a really great experience in terms of learning. But we'd only paired, I'm just I'm curious how you analyze that, because we only paired for a while, and you kind of went off on your own. Do you feel like all that banging your head against how do I really do test-driven development came after we stopped pairing, stopped. after I showed you the ropes. I feel like you showed me the value, right? And then you started learning the lessons. And once, once you justified that it was something worth learning, because really the only way to get good at writing tests and et cetera is to do it, right? Like, like you don't know what to test at first. You're like, I'm going to assert this as a function, but that may not be like important at all. Uh, but, I, you know, I think that experience was definitely a hyperdrive learning experience, which is one that does go against my existing theory of learning. So no, that's 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 fair criticism. So here, that's, and it's, well, it's not really criticism. I'm just asking for analysis. Really? Here's, here's you made me look like a tool. <laughs> <laughs> here, here's my here's my theory on learning, and that is it's quantity of time. And so if you're sitting with somebody pairing and doing like, for example, me, I always feel like I'm weak in CSS. So if I'm pairing with somebody who's strong in CSS, if I'm actively doing the CSS, then I feel like I'm learning my. I'm learning just effectively as if I was just on my own banging my head against the wall because I've got this really experienced guy showing me things, but if I'm actively involved. But if I sit back during the pairing, just let him kind of do it and I tune out, then that's like just like I went to lunch. Yeah, same, same, yeah, so I agree. It's quantity of time. Like I can, mm -hmm. like the other night I spent an hour banging my head against the wall about some CSS problem, came in and asked you, and in like 15 minutes you showed me the solution. That. And so... Yeah, but now I bet you the solution will not be as forgotten as it would have been if I just showed you. Yeah, 
you're definitely right. So I got so like I figure I got the like an hour and fifteen minutes worth of time. If I had spent an hour and fifteen minutes with it, with you doing CSS, I think I would have got the same quantity of learning. Yeah, exactly. Out of it, so I think it's quantity of time, sure. not necessarily just. I mean, there's there's we all know that there's times when when an expert shows you how to do something, there's just no replacement for that. Yeah. Self-directed learning just doesn't. That's true. Like when mm -hmm. when when somebody way smarter than you makes you feel like an idiot on your open source project, <laughs> there's oh. like. This certain yeah. level of gratitude that goes along with it because you just—it's like hyper learning, I guess. Yep. Right. So I have I have two more questions. Well, actually, two more scenarios that I'd, I'd like to just pose to you guys, and I yeah. know that there aren't easy answers for these, but I'm really curious to see what you offer for these. The first one is is that um, let's say that you're in a situation you've got this super smart guy in your company, and um, what what your deal is is basically. He's, he's super smart, but he, you just, you can't deal with this guy. Like he's negative. He's, he's hard to deal with. You know, the company is never going to let him go. And so you're basically stuck with him on your team. How do you deal with that? How, how do you deal with that on your team? Uh, so have you I seen the parent trap? <laughs> <laughs> parent trap? I think, I think this causes That's some really hijinks. Hygiene. Yeah, you need to you need to like put bees in their seed or no? I, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Yeah, because that'll make it better. I know it will. Yeah. Well, your your point is to to convince them that the office is haunted and then they just leave on their own. So 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 there is some attrition <laughs> that you can definitely have, but no, that's that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't try and get the person yeah. fired. <laughs> or or get them to leave on their own. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's not. Good. It's not going to pay off for you, probably. But it's a really great joke. So, so what do you do? I mean, you've got you this guy on your team, and he's a jerk. Well, here's the problem, dude. You can't. The truth is, you can't reason with people that are unreasonable. So either you have to circumvent them or leave yourself. If if it really is at odds, right, and you've tried having several conversations, and the person is literally just irrational, what else can you do? I don't think that it's not magic. Yeah, you have to break up. You have to go through a, a long and painful breakup. Well, there there are some things you can do short of that. Right. I guess maybe it depends on what you mean by circumventing. Because if circumventing really just really can it's a very vague term, it can mean a lot of things. For example, um, in the past, I had one guy that I had a really hard time working with, and we butted heads for a while. Then I actually spent some specific time, like personal time, with him that had nothing to do with work. Right. And so we kind of became buddies. And that didn't make the work issues go away. Like he didn't all of a sudden become the easiest person in the world to work with. But what it meant was I was able to deal with him easier. Was it great? Was it perfect? No. Would I have rather not had to deal with him? Absolutely. But still, you can at least manage, right? Yeah. You, you, right. So you're at odds. You, when you're at odds, you're at odds with somebody that you understand a little bit better and are friendly with as opposed to at odds with that guy at the office that just seems to get under your skin. And sometimes circumvention really just means... You just deal with it, and you, yeah. it, he steps on you, and it sucks, and you learn that, hey, my life doesn't have to be ruined because I there's one guy here that's difficult. Totally. You, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and if it is ruined because maybe this person has complete control over your job, uh, technical stack, or what have you, then find somewhere else to work. Like, life is too short to... To constantly be battling. Right? Well, that, that's that's yeah. good advice that most people could. But there are, there's going to be people that are listening to this podcast that are in a job that whatever it is, they want to learn, you know, something. But maybe the skill set that they've got right now just doesn't allow them to leave their job. Yeah, you have to have the career equity before you get yeah. invested. Yeah. yeah. So let's. So for those people that don't 
have the career equity, it's better to learn that you don't get your validation from other people. So you can be happy in yourself and in what you're doing, regardless of the environment you're in. You're or, or your skill set, because I'm not happy with myself. And, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm good by any means, but I think I could find another job and I, I don't think it would make me any happier, right? Right. But yeah. yeah, happiness does not come from what you go and find in your job. Happiness comes from, you know, you determining that you're going to be happy. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. The, other now, thing, the other thing that I do want to point out is that uh, there's a lot of value in having a team that works well together for the company. And so under certain circumstances, and, and this all depends on your work situation, how the company's structured, who's involved, and all of this. So this may not work everywhere. But in a lot of cases, you can make a value proposition that is basically, uh, hey, look, this person is causing these problems on the team, and we could be more effective, you know, if they, if this situation changed. And, and es essentially, you escalate to somebody who, um, who has some skin in the game, but who is also empowered to come back to this person and say, Hey, look, when you do this kind of thing, it doesn't help. Um, this, it doesn't always work out. I mean, there are always uh, political situations and things that, that may or may not, you know, make that possible. But if you're in a situation where you can, where you have a manager or somebody above you that you can go talk to and at least express your concerns over it, a lot of times uh, they can go talk to that person and make it a little bit better without dr uh, dragging you in uh, directly with with That's, the issue. So That's I, really good advice, Chuck. It is, it is good advice. But, I mean, we, I'm sure we've all been in situations. I've been in a situation where I've done that and it doesn't do any good. I mean, we all yeah. have to remember that life is 10% how you make it, 90% how you take it. Yeah, and yeah, and, and and sometimes, you know, your your upper ups. If you if you go to them and you talk to them, and they're just going to say, "Look, you know, he's he's the man, he's the dude. There's nothing, you know, and, and there's nothing that can be done." We've heard three guys as input on this. I'd like to hear what Jamison and AJ have done in, in situations where they've had this exact thing. What they've done. Well, my person was AJ, and and so I I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> So I haven't had this situation in a technical place, but I've had to deal it with it in, in, a, in another completely unrelated situation. I was living in a foreign country with, with one person that I knew, um, and I really didn't like this person. And it was really helpful. So there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and uh, we had kind of a, a breakthrough moment, I guess. And that came from talking about it with each other. Um, I, I, I think there's some dangers in trying to skip the step of talking to the actual person you might have a problem with. Oh, yeah, never skip it. I agree. Don't ever skip it. Because if, if you don't talk to them, maybe they have no idea that it's a problem. And then yeah. suddenly their manager is like, hey, 